So it looks like O.J. Simpson may go loose. He's a parole hearing and he might be out. By October, so get ready for the inevitable, the juice is loose, headlines and so on, making light of a tragic and brutal and I believe actually murderous life. So a football star showed up in a couple of airplane movies as a goofy sidekick and was married to his wife, I think for about seven years, and he pleaded no contest for assault against his wife. So he was a, a wife beater, according to his own admission. And then um, his wife and uh, she left, I think, her wallet in a restaurant and some guy came to deliver it to their home and uh, both brutally murdered. And uh, this, of course, started the trial of the century. Uh, it was the beginning of the 24-hour news cycle and celebrity culture got a real boost through this. And... Um, Celebrity crime got a real boost through this. And man, it was a pretty wild thing. I mean, I remember very vividly seeing the verdict come down. I was working at a stock trading company. I was a coder. And we all gathered and watched all of the televisions on the trading floor. And uh, I remember being astonished. And so many things went through my mind, which I guess I've returned to and, and some of the themes I developed into, of course, what would many years later become uh, this philosophy show. But a lot of things went to my mind. First of all, it was really fascinating to see the blacks cheering his release. And I remember thinking, that is not a good sign. <laughs> that is not a good sign at all. Like, I can't imagine if I thought O.J. Simpson was innocent, cheering that he would be sent to jail because his victim was a white woman. Like, I'm white and she's white, therefore he should go to jail regardless of whether he's innocent or guilty. But I do remember thinking, but the blacks, a lot of the blacks, cheered his release because he was black. And the fact that he killed her to me seems fairly indisputable, but uh, obviously he was uh, acquitted. So I remember thinking, okay, that's not good. If they have an in-group, like if a lot of blacks have an in-group preference to the point where they're willing to let somebody seems pretty obviously guilty of double murder, if they're cheering him walking free, I guess as a giant F you to the system or F you to the police or F you to whatever, then I remember thinking that is not exactly a compatible theory of justice to what goes on in general. Like the Roman law tradition, common law tradition, the Western tradition, if you have that kind of in-group preference to the point where somebody who seems pretty obviously guilty walks free and you cheer because he's one of yours, I just remember thinking that that does not, that does not bode well. And I also remember thinking at the time that it would be pretty incomprehensible for a white person, or at least any of the white people I knew, to cheer a murderer, a white murderer, to cheer a white murderer going free because he was white. And I remember thinking that lack of in-group preference, that's not good. <laughs> that's not good. Because I mean, that's one of the things that's happened in the West with sort of diversity and multiculturalism and endless waves of non-white immigration is there's been this kind of deal, right? So white people have said, okay, we are giving up on in-group preference. We're gonna have an out-group preference as strong as our in-group preference genetically and ethnically and so on. So it's sort of a, a unilateral disarmament of in-group 
ethnic preferences on the part of white people. Now that can only work if other groups also surrender their in-group preference. Like if you're the only person to disarm <laughs> in a conflict, uh, it is not going to go well for you. And so I do remember thinking, okay, so that is where significant sections of the black community are. And white people would find it incomprehensible to have that kind of in-group preference. So who's going to win in the long run? And this, of course, happened a couple of years after the whole Rodney King thing, which I've talked about in shows before. Uh, Rodney King was a guy who was high on drugs, who was racing through neighborhoods uh, in a car with a bunch of other blacks at high speed. And then he refused to uh, cooperate with the police when they tried to arrest him. So they had to subdue him physically and so on. And I also remember thinking how sinister and nasty the mainstream media was during that situation because uh, Rodney King was resisting arrest and violently resisting arrest, but he had to be subdued. And so what happened was the police, you know, told him to get down, told him to surrender. And every time he reared up and tried to attack them, they hit him with a baton and so on. And what happened was some guy was filming this and the full footage, including the arrest and his resisting arrest, his attacking the policeman and so on, was in the hands of a television station. What happened was they edited it. They edited it so that all that just about everyone saw was what looked like a bunch of cops beating a black guy for no purpose, for no reason. And the cops were tried, I think more than once, they ended up being acquitted because, of course, the jury would see the whole tape. The jury would see the whole video recording. But the media was only playing the race-baiting stuff. You know, the same thing that happened with the Michael Brown narrative. You know, the hands up, don't shoot, and, and shot execution style in the back by a racist cop when he didn't do nothing. He was a good boy. He was turning his life around, you know. Same thing with Trayvon Martin, where they, you know, they, they um, I guess, came up with this white Hispanic thing and, and showed pictures of Trayvon Martin as a little boy and, and all of that. This kind of race baiting that happened was so explosive back in the day. I mean, this is, you know, video cameras, was, there, wasn't, there weren't cell phones back then, but there were video cameras and this guy shooting it. It being broadcast, the Rodney, King, the Rodney King thing produced these riots in Los Angeles after the policemen were acquitted, where like over 50 people got murdered, thousands of people got injured, and these riots went on for like five days straight. And it was truly an astonishing time. Uh, truly a brutal time for all of this. Uh, unbelievably horrendous. And I think that had a lot to do with um, what happened in the O.J. Simpson trial. And the idea that not only is there going to be a lot of in-group preference on the part of the black community for a violent criminal within their midst, but uh, also there is a fear of this kind of rioting occurring today, again, right? Billions of dollars worth of damage. And we see what happened in Ferguson, you see what's happened in Baltimore and other places. This kind of rioting. Uh, now, the rioting itself is bad, but not very dangerous. The problem is, of course, that the media has cranked up racial hypersensitivities to the point where the rational response to rioting on the part of the police, which is to arrest en masse uh, and, and shut down the riot as quickly as humanly possible. You know, what uh, Reagan had to do with some of the campus riots in California in the 1960s, because everybody now is so hypersensitive to the image of, you know, black riot as being arrested or whatever would happen, 
they just let this stuff go. They just let these riots happen and, you know, black businesses get burned down, black homes get burned down, black people get terrorized by, by the gangs and so on. I mean, it's a brutal, brutal situation. And the sort of one-two punch of uh, the Rodney King, and, and of course, sorry, this was the internet was, was just beginning at this point. So there was not that same kind of breakdown of a false narrative as happens now. Like I've done a lot of work to try and cool racial animosities by breaking down some of the shootings that are considered to be, you know, very, very bad. And did this with Alton Sterling, did this with uh, Mike Brown, did this with uh, Trayvon Martin and so on. And so you have counter narratives now, but back then uh, there was no real way to get these counter narratives out to the general population. And so the media constructed, you know, vicious racist cops beating uh, an innocent black man for no reason. I mean, all of this just went completely explosive and forever changed, I think, race relations for the worse uh, in, in this. I mean, things got so crazy with regards to race relations in America that one of the main drivers behind the housing crash, this unbelievable recession that, that lasted forever uh, in, in America, uh, had a lot to do with racial animosities and racial tensions. There was a false report that came out, or a, a report that was inaccurate that came out about how blacks and Hispanics, uh, and blacks in particular, were being denied housing loans at the same rate as, uh, as whites or, I guess, uh, East Asians, Japanese, and uh, Chinese, and so on. And what happened was the government then put an enormous amount of pressure on banks to lend to blacks and Hispanics. And this is where you got the so-called liar's loans, where you just reported your own income and so on. And... What happened was then the the banks facing a lot of pressure to put additional loans into low income people, particularly blacks and Hispanics, the banks lent a lot of money and this, you know, drove up the price of houses. Plus, of course, I mean, people in bad neighborhoods, particularly blacks, they desperately want to get to better schools. And that has, a, for their kids, right, that has a lot to do with why they want to pile so much money uh, into, a, into a decent house. And so what happened was a huge amount of lo loans that the banks knew were hugely risky. They were forced or strongly influenced, I guess you could say, in some cases forced by the government to give loans to minorities. And these were very risky loans. And the bank then had to bundle them up. They had to hide them. They had to sort of bundle them up in these mortgage-backed securities and sell them overseas where people weren't as aware of how much the standards had fallen for giving loans as a result of political correctness. And... Um, then, of course, this inevitably happened when interest rates went up. People on variable interest rates uh, ended up not being able to pay their mortgages. You get a whole crash. And, you know, 40% of the wealth of America gets wiped out, wiped out in the space of a couple of months to six months or so. Astonishing. And again, this is just part of this hypersensitivity around racial issues and so on. And this, of course, is going entirely in the wrong direction. You know, the, the, I have my issues with the socialism of Martin Luther King Jr., but we all know the famous speech that you wish to be judged not by the color of your skin, but by the content of your character. But now, you know, everybody's in the state in particular, and, and even non-state people in the media, so concerned with optics, so concerned with uh, how things look and, and accusations of racism and so on, that people can't talk sensibly or sanely about race issues much at all anymore. And, uh, you know, everyone's so uh, afraid of being taken out of context or some little snippet being replayed endlessly or making a slip that everyone just devolves into these hallmark card cliches of rotating obfuscations and abstractions that do nothing other than signal their own fear about talking honestly about these important issues.
Now, what happened with O.J. Simpson to me also became very interesting as well. You know, he he wrote a book. If I did it, this is how I would have done it. And that to me, I mean, this is this, this, this wife, the wife, uh, your wife, the mother of your children, her head half sawn off. I mean, I don't write a book, prophet. I mean, that's... And then what happened, well, I think in 2007, there were some guys in Vegas who had some sports memorabilia associated with O.J. Simpson. And some guy said, oh, we're going to bring a buyer up to you. And who came up was O.J. Simpson and some friends of his. Uh, and some of them were armed. They had these guys up against the wall and robbed them at gunpoint. And that's what he ended up being put away for. And that's what he's been in jail for. And again, that's just sort of a look at the character, right? I mean, this is a guy who admitted to beating his wife. Uh, this is a guy who did not really have a very convincing alibi uh, to the death of his wife. You know, if, if he'd come home and he'd found his wife uh, with this guy, uh, this guy who had returned her wallet from a restaurant, then uh, yeah, maybe fit of rage, fit of jealousy, who knows, right? But then he ends up being involved in an armed robbery of people who have sports memorabilia. And the idea that there's these two violent incidents on either side, but there's no way there could have been this brutal murders in the middle, I don't know, stretches credibility quite a bit for me. And what's interesting is if you have a look at these snapshots, it's really fascinating and horrifying and tragic. And this is you know, one of the reasons why myself and, and, and Mike Cernovich and Paul Joseph Watson and other people are really focusing on this fake news. Uh, it is desperately dangerous for society to stoke these resentments, to stoke these rages against each other. You know, the ruthless suppression of differences, ethnic differences in IQ, is one of the reasons why we can't have sensible conversations that can lead to real solutions, right? I mean, and, and so the fact that uh, the, the free market is it judges people by IQ, and as a group, different ethnicities have different IQ, is goes a long way towards explaining why East Asians do better than white people in white countries. They have a higher IQ. Why Hispanics do better than blacks? Because Hispanics have a higher IQ. Why whites do better than Hispanics? It, it makes sense. And the bell curve has been out for more than 20 years. Um, Hernstein and Murray's famous book on this, the data has only solidified since then. And the genetic data is coming out now, the degree to which it's genetic. This is how you use science to actually explain things in the world. Just screaming privilege and racism and, and institutional blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's like inventing voodoo to uh, explain the weather. It doesn't do anything other than create job for people who <laughs> claim to understand voodoo. So it is one of these moments, thinking about OJ getting out, is one of these moments where you look back at the, you know, fractious, fiery, Krakatoa-laced landscape of race relations in America and, and around the world. And you say, okay, well, if there's going to be ferocious in-group preferences for non-white ethnicities, then there's going to be this constant opposition to white interests. And there's going to be a constant backing down of white people because, you know, one of the reasons why white societies have their positive elements is this very strong individualism, right? We're very, very individualistic. You and your conscience, you can do anything you want. And what is one of the great advancements in the West and one of the great gifts that the West still dangles over the rest of the world, the rest of the world doesn't seem to want to pick up very much, is this idea of individual rights, individual rights, individualism versus collectivism, always the great conflict in the world. And Western society has 
very much focused on individualism and individual rights and personal responsibility and has fought against tribalism and collectivism to the point even where the concept of nationalism has become anathema as a potential collectivist concept, although globalism is even more of a collectivist concept, but that's still something, you know, globalism, otherwise known as its previous brand, communism, uh, ultimate collectivism, because it divides people into massive class structures and there's no individuation and no individualism other than your soul is water formed by, or clay formed by the rotating potted, potted wheel of um, economic, uh, your economic environment. So individualism is great. It's wonderful. And it produces societies with strong individual rights, personal responsibilities, property rights, and all of the complexities uh, and civilization that comes out of that. But individualism only works in a relatively free society if other groups follow that same ethic as well. Now, if you are individualistic and your group is individualistic, they don't have strong ties to each other, they don't have strong in-group preferences, and you are facing groups within your country that have very strong in-group preferences and are collectivist in nature, and through the power of voting and the amplification of tribal grievances through the media, they can then use it to swamp your society. They can use it to overrun the individualism within your society. And that, I think, is, is a, one of the things that I was thinking about today, looking at what's happening with O.J. Simpson. This is something I remember thinking about many years ago, and it is a very, very big and very important and very real problem that is occurring. Groups coming into the West, groups that are in the West, have very strong in-group preferences. Whites don't. And this sort of, I'm going to face a collectivist cultural army nestling and nursed within my own staunch individualism and lack of in-group preference, well, I don't think it takes long to imagine how that conflict is going to end up.